Good morning, friends. Good to be with you guys again. I am uh, sitting over here just kind of marveling at the providential mercies of the Lord and the way the service was constructed. Uh, the first hymn, How Firm a Foundation, I'll actually refer to a little bit later on in the, uh, the service. Um, Not in Me was part of the worship set at Grace this morning. Uh, a couple of other overlaps that'll, that'll, that'll come out along the way. Uh, it won't surprise you to know that of all the places I have occasion to preach, Grace is my uh, favorite. And the reason that, it, that it's my favorite is because it's where I'm a member. Uh, it's my home church. It's where I have covenanted together and, and really know the people. So, so in that kind of context, um, you know, if, if you have the occasion to preach. And, and you, you know in some ways how what you're saying will land on people because you know some of the burdens and blessings uh, that they are bringing. But I mean this uh, uh, in all sincerity. Uh, when I think of places that I ha- have, have loved preaching, you, you guys are my silver medalists. <laughs> um, and the, or I, I'm not a member here, so I don't, I don't know you like I know the people at Grace, but over the however many months I've, I've pitched in from time to time, um, I have gotten to know your leadership, and I have gotten to know some of your stories, and I've had some of you in class, and some of you as teaching assistants, and so I, I, I have a little bit of a sense of, uh, of the rapport between the, the, the preacher and those receiving uh, the preaching of God's word, so, so it is a delight to be with you. Also, the, the place I've out of all the places I've preached, which isn't a ton, uh, it's also second most, so that's fun. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 5, or you can follow along with the, the, the scripture in your bulletin. We're going to kind of, um, we're going to start in Romans 5, we'll kind of hop around a little bit to a couple of other passages. The theme that we're going to consider is the theme of Christ's obedience, and so Romans 5 will give us a great jumping off point, but then we will look to see the display of Christ's obedience uh, and a couple of other passages. The disobedience of Adam that makes his obedience necessary. Our disobedience makes it necessary as well. And then, and then a couple of portrayals of Christ's obedience uh, in action. Um, again, congratulations to you guys on the birth of Cassie. Very happy for you guys. Uh, so let's start in Romans 5. I'll read. It's either in your bulletin or in your Bibles, uh, verses 17 to 19. And that will get us... Underway, Romans 5, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So the fundamental need that Jesus answers for us in place of Adam is summarized in the word obedience. Obedience of Christ, it's not the only thing that's important to say about his life and ministry, but it does incorporate well many of the other things we might want to say. Uh, about Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, his obedience explains why an incarnation was necessary that began in infancy and progressed all the way through adulthood. Why was this, why was this necessary? The death of Christ alone. So if you think about it, God has the power, 
right, to incarnate Christ, incarnate Christ as an adult male without a childhood and adolescence. A- Adam was never an infant, for example, right? God had the power to, to drop him out of the sky as a 33-year-old man, put him on a cross, ventilate wrath, and that would not be enough to make us right with God. The obedience of Christ. So, so, the, so the cross of Christ, we'll see in a bit, is the climax of his obedience. It's not something other than his obedience. But it, but it is specifically the climax or the culmination of a lifetime of human obedience across the full scope of human experience in our place. See, when Christ gets to the cross, there's not just debt from us that he is taking. There is an acquisition of humanly achieved righteousness that he is offering to us. He's got to get to the cross with something to give, not only with something to take. The, the exchange goes in both directions. Thus, the incarnation from the point of childhood is necessary so that, as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, he would be tempted in every respect as we have been, yet without sin. That's the point of the incarnation, to succeed as a human where we have failed, where Adam has failed, and then lay down his life as the perfect sacrificial offering. From cradle to grave, Jesus obeyed perfectly for his people. Which means that the chief application of today's message is simply this. He's got you. That's the fundamental application point. And as we work towards the, uh, th- that application, there's really just two things that we want to consider this morning. The first, we want to consider the disobedience of Adam and us that makes Christ's obedience necessary. And then secondly, we want to get some time considering how the obedience of Christ counteracts Adam's disobedience and ours as well. So with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and we'll be looking uh, first at verses 1 through 6, and then the, what's sometimes called the first promise of the gospel down in verse 15. Uh, but let me read Genesis 3, 1 through 6 for us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And begin to see the consequences of their sin uh, after that. So, in Eden, Adam and Eve are in a bountiful garden with generous provision. By the Lord. So, you know, 99.999999% of the bearing trees are available to them. And that is just a display of the sheer generosity of the Lord. There's goodness here. There's goodness there. There's goodness everywhere. Right? And yet, there is the prohibition of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And to be clear, the point of the prohibition, it's not magic fruit, okay? Here's the point of the prohibition. The prohibition of God is good, and it is kind. It is a reminder. It is a regular, tangible reminder to him and to her, to Adam and to Eve, you are not God, right? Everything is available to God. Everything is not available to them. It teaches them to live in light of the creator-creature distinction, which is good for them. What is not good for human beings is to try to live as though we were God. And so he puts before them a regular reminder of something that is not magic but is off limits because they don't see all that God sees. They don't know all that God knows. They don't have the rule, the authority that God does. It is good for them to humbly obey him according to his word at this point. And so then, so that's the context. And in this context, the serpent slithers in and he is going to uh, appeal to 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 eve uh, uh in the fashion that he often does uh, by bringing what we could call a uh, a word contest so god has given adam and eve a word to live by here's who you are who made you and what you're for right what's good for you and the serpent is going to say in verse one did god really say that and then when Eve responds that he did and, did and, and you know, adds a little bit and the more we could say there, he goes on in verses 4 and 5 then to, to twist the logic of the prohibition. So what he's doing in verses 4 and 5 when he con- directly contradicts God's claim, you won't surely die, verse 4, and then verse 5, the articulation of another reason, he, he's trying to take what is deadly and make it look like it's dessert, okay? He's trying to take what's deadly and make it look like it's dessert. So he says in verse, so verse 4, you won't surely die, verse 5, God knows when you eat it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he's suggesting into human thinking for the very first time, maybe God for you. He's against you. He's trying to keep you down. In other words, he knows, this is what the serpent says, he knows that when you eat it, you'll be like God. And guess what? He doesn't want anybody like God. Now, here's the deadly twist, right? So a serpent is having this, having this interaction with Eve. Uh, she's already like God. She's already like God in the way that gives her fullness of human life. She's made in his image. The serpent is suggesting that's something that God has withheld, and in order to gain that, she's got to look out for number one, so to speak, right? God has already given this generous gift. If she eats, she will become most unlike God. See, uh, the promise is that she will know good and evil, but... She's going to, if she eats, and of course we know the, the end of the story, she does. She's going to know evil in particular in a very different manner than God does. God knows good and evil as the one who has the right and authority to declare this good and that evil, but who is morally perfect in doing so. When Eve eats and gives some to her husband Adam, here's how they'll know evil. We've done some of it. We've participated in it. We have rebelled against the goodness of our maker. God doesn't know evil as the doer of evil, right? Humans have never thought this way before. 
And so the invitation, right, so, 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 so Satan's trying to take what is deadly and make it look as though it were dessert. And the invitation is to invert the world on its head. Right? So, so, so the way that God designed the world to work is that God, rule, God rules the world, including snakes and lions and tigers and bears and fish and seals and, you know, whatever. God rules the world through, through the mediation of his image bearers. So God, image bearers, steward the earth. That's the, that's the structure. And the invitation here, watch what's, how, how, how twisted this is. The invitation here is for Eve to obey the word of a talking snake over whom she has been given authority to obey the word of a talking snake and usurp the authority of the word of God. Turns the world on its head. Uh, I can't say this for a fact, uh, but I think it's a reasonable hypothesis. And, and the reason I can't say it for a fact is because the scripture doesn't specify this, but I think it is reasonable to infer that the reason that God, while he permitted, while he permitted this temptation to take place, the reason he required Satan to appear in the form of a serpent is so it would be crystal clear. You have authority over it, you, 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 right? This is not a word to listen to. Right? In other, in other words, isn't it just a big cosmic coin flip? God's word, snake's word, who should I listen to? He comes in the form of a serpent over whom she has been given authority and to whom she was not designed to submit. So it's crystal clear, right? And the world gets turned upon its head. <clears throat> uh, we've gestured at this a little bit. It's an interesting question in this interchange, where was Adam? I used to think for the longest time that this was the divide and conquer tactic. So... My working hypothesis for a while was, well, maybe, maybe Eve is with the roses and Adam is with the tulips and Satan sees, ah, divide and conquer. That's not, that's not where he was. Did you see again in verse, uh, in verse 6? She gave, there right, right at the end, she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Where was Adam? He was right there. What was he doing? Nothing. What should he have been doing? Uh, Joanna knows the answer to this. You've heard this story before. Where are you? Oh, all the way in the back. Remember this one? So I told, uh, so, so, so years ago when, when my kids were, were little, um, I, one, of the, one of the toys I, I brought back as a, as a token of my fatherly affection for them on one of the trips I had gone on um, was a, Stuffed animal, uh, black and blue diamondback rattlesnake. It was six feet long, stuffed animal. It was indigenous to the part of the country I had been to. And, uh, and so I brought it back, and you know, they thought it was great. And not long after I had gotten back from this trip, we were, um, we were working our way through our rhythms of, of family devotionals, and we were back to the beginning of a, of a family devotional Bible that we happened to particularly uh, enjoy. And so we're sitting on the couch with our kids. At this point in time, we had three. Uh, we're probably at this point, what, three and a half, two, and an infant. Um, and so when we get to the story of, of the serpent um, whispering this temptation in Eve's ear, and, and I'm just curious, they're really young. What have they picked up? Because we, we've talked about this before, but 
So I pause the story and I say, I look at my, I look at my, my kids and I ask the same question. I said, what should, Adam, what should Adam be doing? And it's funny, you know, when they're, when they're young and they're, uh, they're kind of on the same wavelength and, and they can communicate even without, you know, verbal communication and, and it's not registering for mom and dad. But anyway, so the, the, the infant, she did nothing. She sat in her bouncy chair. But the three-and-a-half-year-old and the two-year-old, they kind of exchange this, this unusually intriguing knowing glance. And they walk over to the toy box in the living room and they pull out this, this diamondback uh, stuffed animal rattlesnake. And, and without ever saying a word, they take it over to the fireplace and they start smashing that thing's head on the ground, and they're jumping up and down on it. And my heart's turning cartwheel. Yes. Yes. This is Jesus in Genesis. This is, right, because Adam didn't crush skulls for his bride. Many millennia later, Jesus would have to come at great personal cost to himself and crush skulls for the sake of his bride. Uh Make no mistake, though, Adam and Eve's story is our story as well. Um, it, it, it's, it's, our, it's not just Adam's sin, right? We inherit, we inherit the virus. Our, our, our sin and disobedience are also being crushed and conquered by Christ, the snake crusher, when he comes. Every sin that we have ever committed violates the same creator-creature distinction. Every sin we've ever sinned distrusts in that moment the word of God in comparison to a different offer, right? Every sin we've ever committed doubts, at least in the moment, the, right? That's what fuels Eve's sin. Maybe God isn't good, and so I've got to look out for myself. We doubt God's character. We convince ourselves that God's ways aren't best that perhaps we're better served to go our own way. This is the sin beneath every sin. But into that deep, deep trouble, the promise of very good news is given. We see this in Genesis uh, 3.15, sometimes termed the first preaching of the gospel. In the process of cursing man, woman, and serpent, uh, the Lord says to the serpent in verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is a promise that's going to unfold again millennia in the making and there's a lot of details to be fleshed in between what Adam and Eve understand about the uh, details of this promise and what we now know on this side of the cross and resurrection about this promise. But there is a, there is a promise given that one of her line will one day crush the serpent's head, even at the cost of absorbing the serpent's blow. In place of their disobedience, there will be an obedient son. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. So that's, that's the disobedience that makes Christ's obedience necessary. And we're going to consider uh, in the temptation narrative of Jesus which I, I'm, I'm arguing has intentional parallels to the temptation in Eden. Different outcome, but intentional parallels uh, that, that we see how uh, Christ's obedience overcomes the deficit of Adam's disobedience as well as, as, well as ours. 
Uh, so I'm going to pick it up with verse 317, uh, actually, right at the end of, of chapter 3. This is uh, in, in, in the, the climax of Jesus' baptism, and that is baptism. We hear this voice, or, or they hear the voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Eve is told, there will be an obedient Son. You re- if you keep reading in the Genesis narrative, when you get to Genesis 4... Um, uh, she initially thinks that that it'll it's going to be going to be Cain that 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 doesn't work out right. Um, many years many years hence, God is announcing, "Here's the obedient son." So how does Christ overcome Adam's disobedience and uh, and ours? And this is his his wilderness temptation. So in chapter four, uh, verse one. We begin to read that, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We'll consider each, there's three temptations. We'll consider each of them in turn. I said this is an intentional reenactment of Eden. Jesus is the true son, right, in fulfillment of Adam and Eve's disobedience. He is also, and we don't have time to go into this today, he is also the true Israel, um, one of the things that comes across as Jesus responds to these temptations is that in every case, all three, he responds with citation from the book of Deuteronomy, either chapter 6 or chapter 8. And, and remember, Israel at this point in time is wandering in the wilderness, shy of inheriting the promised land because of their own disobedience. And so Jesus is not only the better Adam, he's also the better Israel. Uh, that's gonna ha- we're going to have to background that. Um, A little bit. In any case, after the sonship of Jesus is announced, he is then sent, chapter 4, verse 1, into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. He's sent in the direction of confronting our true enemies. Now, many of his contemporaries on this occasion would have assumed he should be marching in the direction of Jerusalem to deal with the Roman occupiers. But he's sent instead into the wilderness to be tempted by the, right? The Roman occupiers are not the biggest problem that the people of God face. The biggest problem that we face is not out there. It's in here, right? And so he's going into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil as that concerns us. Notice, notice he's sent by the Spirit to be tempted. The point of the ministry of Jesus in his his incarnate life is not to avoid temptation, but to conquer it. Not to, right? Again, he's got to get to the cross with an acquisition of faithfulness, faithful obedience. And that means he doesn't just bypass temptation. He must be victorious over it where all the rest of us have failed. So these three temptations, then they, they, they're brought by the devil. They're not the only temptations that Jesus faces in these 40 days. They do seem to be climactic ones. And this is not the last time Jesus is tempted by the devil. We'll look at some Uh, examples of that towards the end here in a bit. But in the first temptation, uh, he is tempted by the enemy to turn stones to bread. We see that in verses 2 and 3. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. We'll look at his response in just a moment. It's kind of an understatement. After 40 days of fasting, he was hungry, right? I mean, uh, this, is, this is not a fast done in the power of supernatural agency. This is Jesus having taken on a human body with a digestive system that requires nourishment, that if you do not eat, you can starve to death. 
And so in, in, a, in a very emaciated state of, of, of weakness, the, the serpent strikes at the point of his hunger. And then he makes the claim, you see it in verse 3, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Quick clarification here. You can read that in English. You can read that in English and think that what, what the enemy is saying is, if you're the son of God, and I'm not really convinced that you are, do something miraculous like turning stones to bread and I'll buy what you're selling. That is not, it can sound like that in English, that's not the point of contact. Um, grammatically, it's signaled differently, the theology signals differently. Essentially, the way that this is phrased, it's, it's closer to since, S-I-N-C-E, since, than if. In other words, Satan has no doubt about who this is. It's not if you're the son of God and I don't believe it. It's you're the son of God. So what in the world are you doing starving in the desert? You have the power to turn stones to bread. Does he have the power to turn stones to bread? He can do that if he wants to, right? On other occasions, he takes a few, a few loaves and a few fish and multiplies it to feed 5,000 and 4,000. You're the son of God. This is going to sound Eden-like, isn't it? He's not looking out for you. You got, you got to look out for number one. You got, to watch, you got to watch your own back. You have the prerogatives and the authority to turn stones to bread. Use it. He's not for you. That's the point of contact. Jesus responds, verse 4, It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone. This was read for us earlier today. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Remember that word contest all the way back in Genesis 3? God's word, snake's word? It's happening all over again here, isn't it? And Jesus is saying, right? Adam and Eve, they sinned in opulence, right? A place of opulence. They, 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 they weren't the least bit hungry. Jesus is starving, and he says, in effect, there's a more important food to live by than the food that fills the belly. Living by the word of God is his food and drink. Jesus is definitively obeying for us, but he is also showing us how to fuel clear-sighted obedience. When the false word of temptation would whisper its lies to you, the way of clarity in combat is by reliance on the clear word of God. Uh, the second temptation is similar in some respects. We'll read it in verses 5 through 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and then he quotes, the devil quotes, Psalm 91, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, so Satan quotes Psalm 91. Essentially, he's twisting the word of God again, isn't he? He's like, okay, I can deal, I can deal with a pre-existing word. I've just got to manipulate it, right? I've got to twist it. And, and, and similarly, the, 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 the statement that, he, that begins, if you're the son of God, uh, the grammar, the theology is the same as the, uh, as the previous. He's basically saying not, I don't think you're the son of God, but if you jump and some angels catch you, I'll buy what you're selling. He's saying... You're the son of God. Don't you of all people want to know that you haven't forfeited the father's favor? 
He's left you for dead. Don't you, Jesus, of all people, want and deserve the following and the exaltation that would result from this kind of angelic intervention? You can have what you want, but you're going to have to force his hand. He's stingy. He's tight-fisted. But he has made a promise to which he must be faithful. All you have to do is force his hand and jump. The angels will catch you. They have to. And then you will know that you haven't lost the Father's favor. Jesus responds in verse 7, again quoting from Deuteronomy. Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, what's Jesus doing? He's refusing to go along with the manipulation of God's word, right? Psalm 91 is not making any kind of point that pertains to taking reckless gestures to see if God will protect you. Jesus says the path of relation to the Father is a path of relating by trusting and not by testing, right? Of receiving and not by manipulating, of confidence in God's character and obeying his word even when the pathways are hard, as surely they were here, right? Temptation number comes in verses 8 and 9. The enemy is really twisting the dagger in this one. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. We'll look at the response in just a moment. What's the point of contact here? It's similar to the previous two. This hard, Jesus cannot possibly be good. It's one thing to starve you in the wilderness. It's another thing to win the nations by the means that he has appointed. You know where this is going. You know what's in store. You know the path that he will require you to walk by which the nations will be won. You're the son of God for crying out loud. You do not deserve... To suffer in their place. To be clear, Satan is not omniscient, but he has been watching for a very long time. So he suggests an alternative. He says, Jesus, you can have what you came for without what you dread. You can have the nations without the cross. Does Jesus dread the wrath of God, facing the wrath of God for sins he didn't commit? It was read for us earlier in Gethsemane in Matthew 26. He prays on multiple occasions, if there's any way to bypass this cup, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The deceiver, it's it's not that his authority supersedes God, but there is a sense in which Satan is the, the God, little g, of this fallen world who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. You see that in passages like 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and others. He tries to tempt Jesus at the point of offering the very thing for which he came without the cross of the cost, the, the, excuse me, the cost of the cross. He says, Jesus, if in no other instance, look out for number one in this case, because he surely is not. What does Jesus say? Verse 10 <clears throat> 
Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, quoting Deuteronomy for the third time, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In other words, go back to the pit. There is one way to win the nations and one way only, and that is the path of obedience to the Father that pleases the Father. You remember when we saw in Genesis 3 how Adam and Eve's disobedience inverted, upended the order of the universe. Jesus in this moment is climactically refusing to take the same bait. He is doing here what Adam ought to have done. He is doing here what you and I ought to have done. And then check this out in verse 11. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You remember temptation number two that we saw just a second ago? Satan says, the, prom- the, 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 the evidence of the Father's favor will be seen when the angels show up. Well, now he's just passed the test by trusting rather than by manipulating. And what happens? The angels show up. They are, in fact, the sign of the Father's favor on the obedient son. And, 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 and I mean, it's such a short verse, right? They're ministering, among other things, I'm, I'm sure they're providing food and nourishment, but encouragement and rest. They're the, they're the sign of the Father's well done. And yet, and yet, this is not the last time. Turn with me to Matthew 16. We'll just look at a couple of other instances here. This is not the last time that the serpent would bring his diabolical temptation trying to turn uh, the will of Jesus to be a disobedient son. We're going to see this in Matthew 16, uh, verses 21 to 23. So Peter has just confessed uh, Jesus as the Christ, which is his, his, his wonderful confession. And then in Matthew 16, verse, verse 21, here's what we read. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, that's Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What's happening here? It's the voice box of Peter, but it's the logic of Satan. It's not too late. Offer still stands. You don't have to go. He shouldn't make you go. You are the son who does not deserve to be where the Father is going to send you. And look how Jesus sorts wheat from chaff in the claim of Peter. Turn to Matthew 27, just a few more chapters to your right. This is now when Jesus is climactically hanging on to, or hanging on the cross, and his sonship would appear to be called into question, right? It's fascinating what, uh, what, gets, what gets stated here. We're just going to pick it up in verse 39. So Jesus is now on the cross. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Next sentence has the very same grammar as Matthew 4. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the uh, chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. 
Uh, it's the same. It's the same logic, right? It's the vo- if you're the son of God, it, it's the voice of the mockers, but it's the logic of the enemy. Even now, you don't have to be there. You are the son of God who doesn't. Des- How could he? His ways aren't best if not before. Now is the time to look out for number one. And they mock him that he cannot save himself. Could he? Could he save himself if he wanted to? Absolutely. In, in, in the passage that, that Jason read for us from Gethsemane in Mark 26, he says, if I were to say but a word, the Lord would dispense 12 legions of angels. He doesn't say the word. Friends, there is no force in the universe that can hold Jesus to that cross against his will. When he stays on the cross, he does not stay as a hapless victim, but as one who clings to the cross, instead, in our place, drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the very last drop. But it is also true that while he is able to save himself should he so choose, what he cannot do is save himself and also save you. One or the other. That cross is yours or that cross is his. That cross is mine or that cross is his. He can save himself, but he cannot save himself and at the same time save you and me. So not coming down from the cross, as we mentioned earlier, was the climax of Jesus' obedience, wasn't it? It was the very hardest test taken last of all. It is the ultimate expression. Refusing to come down when he could come down is the ultimate expression of not looking out to his own interests. That's why Philippians 2.8 tells us that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross which is not to say that he obeyed death, but that he obeyed God until the point of death. And so in this moment, as the serpent bruises his heel, he gives to the serpent his death blow. So as we said at the outset, friends, this morning's message boils down once again to the incredibly good news by way of application that because of his perfect life, his perfect obedience in life and in death, he's got you. And because he does, you can be confident that he is also redeeming all of your heart for good. We sang at the outset this morning uh, the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. It's got in there a, a line that I love, what more can he say than to you he hath said. But it made me think about what would be a, a, a similarly true statement, even though it's not in the hymn. When you look at the work of Jesus, the obedience of Christ, clinging to the cross even until his final breath, you could, you could amend that line or include another line that went something like this. What more can he do than for you he hath done? He, he could do no more. He could give no more. And as a result, you and I in Christ could not possibly be any more secure. If you have received Christ's obedient representation by faith, then nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, if you personally have never done that, make today the day that you do. Your leaders, myself, would be very happy to talk with you uh, after the service is over. So I want to give two parting food for thought questions 
as we, as we wind this down here. Okay, two food for thought questions. Number one, what would, this would be good for, to reflect on later on this afternoon perhaps, what would resting with more assurance in Christ's perfect obedience look like for you? What would resting in Christ's perfect obedience with, with more assurance, what would that look like for you? In other, words, in other words, where are your anxieties poking up in such a way that betray lack of assurance or insecurity or a look to something else to cover you other than the righteousness of Christ, which, of course, would be an insufficient covering. Um, anxieties often will, 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 will show where our, our false treasures and our false securities lie, won't they? So that's question number one. Here's question number two. How might gratitude, gratitude for Christ's perfect obedience, stir up for you and I the worship of our own increased obedience this week? How might gratitude for his perfect obedience stir up and stimulate us to walk in increasing obedience this week? Not, not counting our obedience, right, as, as what saves us, but as a reflection of gratitude for what he has done for us perfectly. His perfect obedience stir up our pursuit of the worship of increased obedience to him this week. Well, with those things in mind, uh, let's pray and ask God to mobilize us towards those ends. Heavenly Father, we great worship uh, to you for planning this path of redemption, Jesus, we give you worship and praise for accomplishing it. Spirit, we give you praise for empowering the Son to faithful obedience at every step along the path of his incarnate life. And now, being at work in our lives so that we might increasingly uh, reflect the image of Jesus. I pray for uh, the people of First Baptist Hacienda Heights this week that we would uh, steep ourselves in the good news of Christ's perfect, obedient representation in a way that would lead to greater assurance, greater security, and greater worship. We ask these things in his name. Amen.